Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. I know it was almost two weeds ago, but I gotta say, I am still a little bit high from 420. Okay, not literally, but definitely in the sense that I'm just really excited to be done with winter and moving officially into cannabis cultivation season. Get those victory gardens planted everybody flower to the people and also thank you so much to all of you who wrote in with season's greenings for 420 this year you can email us absolutely anytime info at great moments in weed would love to hear from you personally i had an extremely lit high holiday down in los angeles this year. Checked out friend of the podcast, Mike Glazer, hosting a show at the Legendary Comedy Store. Appeared on friend of the podcast, John Gabrus's annual Mega Sesh live stream, which you can uh, check out on his High and Mighty podcast feed. And then I raced across town just in time to host a weed trivia contest with our friends at Green Street. But that my friends, was not the topper, because just a few days after 420, I was invited to the Lagunitas Brewery, where I got to meet a quorum of the one and only Waldos. Now, as Great Moments in Weed History listeners already know, back in 1971, a legendary five-person weed crew called the Waldos gave birth to the global 420 phenomenon when they set 4.20 p.m. as their official time of departure for an after-school safari in search of a clandestine weed patch hidden way, way out in the wilds of Northern California. The rest, as they say, is history. If you don't already know this classic cannabis tale, definitely go back in the Great Moments in Weed History archives and check out our episode about the history of 420. It's a wild ride. In the meantime, I gotta say that seshing with the Waldos was an all-time highlight for yours, truly. I also got to sample the Lagunitas Waldos Special Ale and to be among the very first to sip on a new Still Waldo's whiskey that the brewery just released in conjunction with their next door neighbors at Griffo Distillery. Yes, I took a lift home that night from the brewery. Anyway, big shout out to all the kind folks at Lagunitas, which is no doubt the most cannabis-friendly brewery out there. They make their own cannabis drink called Hi-Fi Hops that you can get at finer dispensaries. And Lagunitas has even got an incredible Great Moments in Weed History worthy story that happened right at their brewery. So hopefully we will be able to bring you that tale in its entirety on a future episode of this podcast. This weed, however, we're going global with an episode about the incredible cannabis scene happening right now in Thailand. Our guest is Michelle Loke, a drugs and nightlife journalist who penned the stoner cult classic book, Weed. Everything you want to know but are always too stoned to ask. Michelle writes an excellent and insightful newsletter called Rave New World and throws a party called Weed Rave that you should not miss if it comes to where you live. 
Michelle has also been spending significant time in Thailand recently, reporting on the weedy free-for-all that first erupted there in June 2022 after the Thai government struck medical marijuana from an official list of narcotics banned for use or distribution and effectively made cannabis legal for medical and even culinary uses Ever since, according to Michelle and many other sources, weed is just everywhere in Thailand. Now, that flowering open of Thailand's long-suppressed cannabis culture stands in very stark contrast to what's happening in Singapore, where Michelle was born and raised. Just last week, the government in Singapore executed a 46-year-old man for, quote, abetting the trafficking of more than one kilogram of cannabis that's about two pounds. There was absolutely no physical evidence presented in court. The entire case was based on police statements and testimony from others accused of the same crime. Now, Please note this unconscionable execution took place after my conversation with Michelle was recorded, so we don't talk about it directly. But Michelle does discuss the cultural whiplash of seeing Singapore's draconian war on weed continuing unabated, even as less than a thousand miles away, Thailand is experiencing this incredible cannabis renaissance. We also talk about how cannabis culture in Asia actually dates all the way back to antiquity, how in the 1970s, Thai stick was considered sort of the ultimate international head stash. And of course, uh, we talk about our shared hope that the current reforms happening in Thailand will not only continue there, but will actually spread throughout the entire region. It is a fun and a really fascinating conversation with a true friend of this podcast. But before we get into it, speaking of friends of this podcast, I have to say a huge thank you to everyone who supports Great Moments in Weed history on Patreon. You are the reason we are still here getting high on history. And if you want to join the ranks of those who support this podcast, please, please, please check us out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You can put as little as $1 into the bucket as we digitally pass it around. That will help so much. We're really trying to get to 420 supporters and we're getting very, very close. You could put five on it if you really want to help this community spread our message about cannabis history and culture around the world. And for a little, little bit more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly mailed direct to where you live. It's all happening at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Sign up and best of all, you'll get the video version of this podcast. You'll see me holding up my packs ready to puff right before the theme song and you will get a new episode every single week or every single weed, as we like to say here at Great Moments in Weed History. So if you're listening in the podcast feed, you get one new show every two weeks, classic Great Moments in Weed History. That's how you found this episode. But if you sign up, you will also get 
access exclusively to our secret sessions where I get lit and have a very informal, but also, I think, very enlightening sesh with one of our supporters. Most recently, I talked with Casey, who is a supporter of this show and a fiber freak who says that uh, getting knit and getting lit have a lot in common. It's a very cool community, the fiber world. There's like designers and then there's all the knitters. You go to these fiber events and it's just this really cool community, not unlike like the cannabis community where there are these large events around the thing that we all love. All right. So those are the secret sessions. The only way to access them is to join us on Patreon at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Let's get into our story. This weed about cannabis in Asia, about the incredible weed scene happening in Thailand. But what if you're saying to yourself, well, that sounds amazing. I am all in, but I'm not ready yet. Please stop the podcast machine. I got to I gotta get high, and I'm not there, I don't even have anything, it's all, it's in the other room, or this guy, it's, uh, uh, just chill. You know what you gotta do? All you gotta do is hit pause and use that time at your discretion and at your leisure to roll yourself a joint, or to split a blunt, or to pack a bong, or to endabulate a dab, or to do what I'm about to do, which is to get yourself your very own Pax Vaporizer, so you can puff puff Pax along with me. That's at Pax.com, P-A-X.com. And if you use the promo code Great Moments, you'll get a significant discount at checkout. But for right now, whatever you got to get lit with, get it ready right along with me. For another great moment in weed history. Michelle, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. So thrilled to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to let people in on what's going on with cannabis in Thailand. And I thought maybe you could start by kind of giving us a little insight into your own weed journey growing up in Asia and and becoming a fellow cannabis and psychedelics reporter and uh, how how you ended up in Thailand more recently. Yeah, for sure. I would love to actually start with my upbringing in Asia because I grew up in Singapore, which is one of the most sort of prohibitionist, draconian (laughs) drug laws countries in the world. And my first experiences with weed in the region are just like totally tainted with so much fear and paranoia and just the sense that stoner culture as it existed was such an American pop cultural concept to me. And that's exactly why Thai weed now is so exciting to me because it never seemed possible when I was a kid growing up in Asia to have a weed culture that is Asian, (laughs) a legal weed culture. 
So yeah, I basically moved to New York and started my sort of writing career there as a music journalist. I was covering a lot of nightlife and electronic music culture. So everything from like underground raves to EDM festivals. And through that, I kind of realized that I'd become an accidental drug expert. (laughs) (laughs) Just because these cultures are so intertwined. And so when I moved to California to kind of chase the budding cannabis industry post-legalization in 2018, I was really interested in how this, you know, street culture that I'd been a part of for so long was becoming this other corporatized thing. But now I feel like everything comes back full circle, you know, like going back to Asia, reconnecting with my roots, seeing things like cannabis legalization unfolding in a way that is so interesting to juxtapose with what I've witnessed happening in California. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I I think, you know, one of the reasons that I really feel cannabis history is important to understand and to celebrate and to sort of reclaim from often being purposely obscured is when we look at Asia as one example, there's an ancient history of cannabis use that long predates the existence of the United States, never mind the sort of 1960s weed culture, counterculture that we often associate with, quote unquote, the early days of weed. And yet, having grown up there, it seems like you were in an environment where that was denied and suppressed and you were uh, subjugated to a lot of propaganda about, uh, not subjugated, exposed. Yes, subjugated. I think subjugated. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think that we growing up in Prohibition, have a historical amnesia. And it's especially wounding when it's about your own cultural heritage. Like I consider Southeast Asia to be my cultural heritage, not just Singapore, because all these countries are so interconnected. Weed has such a long history in Asia. It's indigenous to this land. And its use goes back to the cultural roots of many Asian tribes. It felt like a revelation and it felt like I've been cheated of my own history. On the flip side, you know, the the hope is certainly that by having Thailand and and we'll we'll get to the present, of course, make these strides and, and, and make this big pushback against prohibition, that that can be an example regionally. One one thing I found interesting looking into the history of cannabis in Thailand is uh, a connection to India and actually the word ganja being used in Thailand and that uh, leading linguists and cultural historians to think that that may have been how the word arrived there. I think it's really interesting how we are trying to trace the beginnings of cannabis through both linguistic terms, you know, just sort of finding the etymology of the word ganja being shared across both Thailand and India. But also um, there are all of these studies being done on a sort of genomic level, trying to trace back the earliest land races and whether they came from the Middle East, which is sort of the popular belief, or if it came from Asia. Yeah, like the predominant theory right now seems to be that it came from India, that it was used indigenous that it was pretty much just like seen as a normal crop, (laughs) like a medicinal crop that people grew in their gardens and their villages for centuries. It really only started to become 
regulated in the 1920s with the opium war. America really wanted to pressure its global partners to crack down on the cannabis and hemp trade because they saw it as being related to its interest in ending the opium trade. So up until then, like there were literally no laws around cannabis in Thailand. Cannabis really did start to suffer a lot of reputational damage because of, I think, miseducation and the sort of linkage between cannabis and meth which became a huge problem in the region. But even before that, I think there was already an underground, really thriving culture of Thai cannabis being grown outdoors in in really ideal conditions. If you go to Thailand now, you can see that a lot of their outdoor strains are still like magnificent. In the sort of 60s, a lot of hippies started coming on the hippie trail to areas in Southeast Asia and taking these Thai sticks is what they called them, right? Which were basically like fully grown flour that was kind of like skewered (laughs) with bamboo (laughs) sticks and wrapped with cannabis leaves. And it was such a cool local tradition that became imported as like a luxury item in the West by both hippies and soldiers. There's so much lore around Thai sticks that they were so highly prized that people were selling them for more than the price of a Cuban cigar, that it was like the best weed that anyone had ever seen on that side of the world, etc. But yeah, at the same time, I think like back home in Thailand, as the drug war was sort of ratcheting up, as meth was kind of like gaining a foothold, yeah, people started to see cannabis as sort of it's in the shadow of meth. And so in the 2000s, the early 2000s, Thailand had a huge drug crackdown. They started arresting people sort of indiscriminately. There were a lot of killings of like so-called drug dealers, similar to what's happening in the Philippines. For the most of the 2010s, Cannabis was still highly regulated, which is why it's honestly such a mindfuck what's going on now. Like, I remember going to Thailand in like 2015, you know, partying in Bangkok and people telling me like, do not carry any cannabis with you. Like even a joint, you could get stopped by the cops at like a traffic light and be put in jail for days and you just disappear. It's like not worth it. So, I mean, it was such an intense culture of fear, even in 2015. But in 2018, they decided to legalize medical marijuana. And that's kind of when the floodgates started opening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted, I do want to go back to talk about the Thai stick era yeah. uh, for a minute one, because it's a, a fun era and a, a very interesting and unique cannabis uh, iteration, shall we say. Uh, but also just to co-sign that idea that this was very, very prized cannabis of the era. And um, just through different interviews that I've done over the years, I can remember talking to somebody who was a soldier, a U.S. soldier in the war in Vietnam and was, you know, very disinterested uh, and oppositional to being there to fight in combat, but uh, very excited about accessing cannabis and selling it to other soldiers and uh, eventually smuggling some home. And, and, they uh, told me that absolutely the the best cannabis in the region was was sourced from Thailand at that time. A lot of U.S. soldiers uh, returned with some Thai stick and certainly with 
fond memories of it. And uh, people I uh, know to this day who were smuggling cannabis into uh, California, that was considered the ultimate high grade top shelf of its day. And that, um, you know, speaks a lot to its quality and also to the quality and care of the cultivators in Thailand. So I'm wondering what you might know about that sort of tradition. Is there a Humboldt County of Thailand? In 2018, actually, when they legalized medical cannabis in Thailand, I became obsessed and I made a pilgrimage to Bangkok where I spent a couple months researching the scene. And what people told me is that up in the north, there are a lot of sort of hemp villages that are populated by the Hmong tribe. And they basically create all kinds of goods out of hemp from clothing to other forms of textiles. And they also grow a lot of cannabis that they put into their food sort of medicinally. So you'll find it as like an herb amongst like hundreds of other ingredients in some delicious medicinal soup. I think that you could maybe compare it to Humboldt in the sense that it is much less regulated. It seems to be kind of just happening um, sort of as a free-for-all. But I am reluctant to kind of put too much of a comparison between these two places because I think that the farmers really see it as potentially just a cash crop for them to ache out a living in really harsh conditions. And so unfortunately, I think that there's not as much of a like modern day weed culture around the plant. I think that a lot of historical and cultural knowledge around how to grow the plant even has been erased. And so my question is whether Thai weed, as it sort of enters the modern era of legalization, will be able to compete with the knowledge that American growers or European growers have really perfected over the last few decades. Definitely the fact that they have these indigenous land races and historical strains, I think could be a really strong selling point. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, we we, we enter this period, as you described it, of an extremely intense drug war. And then, and there was, um, this was a period when the Thai police were seemingly authorized by the government to execute people on site in the street. You know, this was uh, a common occurrence at the era. So that, that level of intensity of a drug war, politically and socially, how did it go from that to, you know, the initial medical decriminalization and now this sort of... Uh, uh, all-out decriminalization. What what were the political and social factors that led to that change? Yeah, well, it's fascinating because it's kind of similar to America, where the failures of the drug war sort of let led politicians to realize, like, okay, our prison populations are completely out of control because we're locking up every single person for using, much less dealing, and so now we just have overstuffed system that can't keep up and you know what if we tried legalizing just for medical use that was really the party line in the beginning just for hospitals to be able to use it and I think the fact that it really does have roots 
in Thai culture helped because they were never ever actually able to stamp it out like even despite such intense paranoia and fear it wasn't like Singapore where you really don't find cannabis on the streets that much like even in Bangkok like such a cosmopolitan city and stuff like so many people were just proud to be stoners out and about like growing their own weed at home like you know I would say that average Thai people are just like they accept cannabis as part of their culture. So I think legalizing it was a little easier for Thailand um, compared to some other Asian countries. The initial party line was very, very focused on medical only, the government. They actually created their own strain. They're the first country to create their own strain for medical testing only. And I remember meeting with like, you know, the ex-UN head of like narcotics control. And he was like so adamant that it would never reach the streets. But Thailand being Thailand, (laughs) you know, things can get really chaotic on the ground. And what ended up happening is, you know, they went from saying, okay, everyone can grow six plants on their own in 2018 so that, you know, hopefully they could supply some cannabis to the government to just realizing that it was impossible to kind of control how this thing was spreading. And I think what really set off the recreational market as it is today is the government when they sort of revised their scheduling of regulated drugs last year decided to take cannabis off the list and that was definitely a politically motivated move there is a um, political party called the Bumba Jai Thai party that has really ascended to power with cannabis legalization as one of their key sort of uh, political drivers. And so, yeah, they were kind of behind this move to remove cannabis as a controlled substance, but they didn't actually reschedule it or provide any sort of regulatory framework for how cannabis was now going to be regulated if it wasn't a controlled substance. So everything just went wild. And I think That's kind of what makes this moment in Thai weed so special. Like when I went there about two weeks ago, I um, just was just walking around the streets of this sort of touristy beachy resort town called Krabi. And there were every single type of weed business that you could imagine, you know, like there were pizza restaurant serving like weed in the pizzas there were like Italian soda edible things there were little shacks selling like you know hand rolled joints just like it felt really common people like people just you know just everyday Thai people opening up like little stores and doing what they can of course there were also like high-end bougie dispensaries that looked like a med men store <laughs> but I think that this sort of like so chaotic free for all like really populist bent to it isn't going to last forever but that's what's happening now yeah it's it really gets it seems like it's a gray market moment and yes. and california went through that that same process and and had some of the same uh feel of what you're describing because when it's an illicit market when every single plant by definition is uh criminalized and every single person using cannabis or growing cannabis is criminalized no matter uh the reason or the amount 
um, you know, that creates a culture of resistance and an underground also is an awful and terrible, oppressive, and in this country and many other places, racist system of social control. And by the time the authorities that have fought against cannabis for so long get around to regulating it, they treat this plant like it's plutonium. And there's a million regulations. And of course, that creates a system that's very hard for ordinary uh, people without a lot of capital to get involved. But in this gray market era, when not everything is criminalized, and there's no real thing saying what is uh, legal, for instance, you know, now to grow cannabis in California, you have to have a license from the government commercially beyond your uh, personal plants. But in, you know, the era from when Prop 215 in 1996 was passed, the first statewide medical cannabis law, it was gray. It was not well-defined who could grow and how much. And so you have this, you know, some people would call it the Wild West or a free-for-all. I would just say, as you said, you know, a more common sense approach. So it's exciting to hear that that's going on in Thailand now. But yeah, I think ultimately those gray markets don't last forever. But while we're there in that sort of beautiful gray market era, tell me about the cannabis that you found. Uh, you know, I know you have plenty of experience with California cannabis to compare it to in terms of quality, in terms of price variety? Did you see different kinds of strains? Um, how is it being offered in one big jar that they weigh out? Or is there a lot of branding? How is all of that working out on the ground right now? One of the first places that I actually stopped at to talk to the people working there was this little sort of shack by the side of the street called Sativa Cafe. And it caught my eye because they were selling all kinds of delicious drinks alongside the sort of pre-rolls and flowers. But once I started looking at the weed itself, um, what I thought was also really interesting, which I guess is a regulation actually, is that they were selling all local strains. So, I mean, obviously they can't really import <laughs> strains from the U.S. So, you know, they had a strain called Thai stick. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't the sort of preparation method that we discussed. It was actually just a strain that has taken that name. And these are mostly outdoor strains that they were selling. So, you know, it wasn't like the dankest nug that I've ever seen, but it still smelled pretty good. And um, the prices I thought were surprising. Um, I guess maybe I just assumed because it's Asia that everything would be cheaper. But the prices came out to about $15 a gram, I think. So pretty much on par with California, if not more expensive. But the owner of this shop, I thought was really, um, really sort of emblematic of what's going on right now with the local weed scene. Her name was Apple. She was sort of this sort of hippie-ish woman with like tattoos of flowers across her chest and a really sweet smile. And as soon as she heard that I was a writer, she was like, okay, 
well, let's get into it. You know, let me tell you the real problem, which is that American companies or cookies are going to come in really soon and they are going to take over the market. She was such an advocate for like local Thai weed culture. And she kept saying, you know, you can find some of the best strains in the world in America and Europe. But when you come to Thailand, you want to eat pod Thai, you want to eat the mango sticky rice, you should also try outdoor grown Thai weed. All of their strains come from like small farmers working either in on that island or in um, a region called Chiang Mai or Chiang, Chiang Rai, which are also kind of the hotbeds of weed culture in Thailand. And you know, her partner, who was sort of the Spanish dreadlocked hippie guy also, who was like constantly smoking joints throughout the night, you know, he 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 kind of mentioned that the government had given away a million seeds to Thai farmers as sort of a PR campaign to kickstart the sort of, you know, local marijuana movement. And he was like, that's great, but it's not enough. You know, the government really needs to step in and help local businesses stay alive in the impending sort of assault of foreign interests. And it's true, you know, after that, I kind of looked into what Cookies has been doing, and they actually opened a dispensary in Bangkok already. You know, there is a law that says that you can't open, you can't get a license to uh, run a dispensary in Thailand unless you're a Thai citizen. So it's more of a franchise operation, a partnership, but it has all the Cookies branding and a lot of the Cookie strains, which actually I did see a lot of Cookie strains in all of the weed shops. So <laughs> cookies has definitely arrived in Thailand. Yeah, well, branding will get you far uh, in this world, as we as we know, you know, whether that's a name that somebody put on uh, the cannabis they happen to have, because that's what's going to sell well, or that's what's going to sell well to tourists, you know, is, is always very hard to tell, even in a dispensary in the United States, you know, you you can put way too much faith in uh, what the label on something says versus uh, how it smells, how it smokes, what it looks like. But it, 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 there is a sort of a sense of neo-colonialism, I think, to that, mm. particularly when we're talking about a place that has such a long tradition and a storied tradition of cannabis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think before, before actually coming to Krabi on this most recent trip, I had assumed that Thai-grown strains would not be as good as U.S.-grown strains. It was sort of an inbuilt prejudice, I think, that I had. But the second place that I stopped, I found through Google reviews <laughs> and people kept saying like, oh, this place has the best flower on the island. Like you have to go. I pulled up. It was in a slightly more remote street with not that many headlamps or, or street lights. But as soon as I found it, it was like finding an oasis <laughs> in all of this darkness. It was just like a table that these two younger kids probably in their 20s or early 30s, had kind of set up outside of their tattoo parlor. They had all of these jars full of just like 
beautiful, crystalline, super dank, like delicious looking nugs. And, you know, I kind of had a flashback to two summers ago when I was partying in Singapore and, you know, some kids were smoking weed. (laughs) I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about this. It's so taboo to talk about people doing drugs in Singapore, but I'm not going to name any names. But basically, you know, I kind of came up to them and I was like, what is this weed you're smoking? It smells really good. And they were like, yeah, this is from Thailand. And that actually was the first moment where I started realizing, oh, interesting. Thailand is producing really good weed and people are now getting Thai weed as a status symbol or like, you know, like a big stoner energy kind of symbol instead of saying, oh, I'm smoking Cali weed. So, you know, I think Thailand does have a chance, actually, of rivaling what's going on in the rest of the world. But they have so many structural things to kind of figure out before we can even start talking about global trade, which seems so far away. It certainly seems like, you know, cannabis is uh, pretty easy to find, if, if, if almost hard to avoid at this point, at least seeing it and encountering it. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing about drinks. I'm hearing about edibles. Are you allowed to light up a joint at these places? Do they have what we would call on-site consumption as, as part of these shops and, and, and places where you can access cannabis? Technically, actually, the government did step in and put in some regulations in place, including that you cannot smoke in public and you cannot sell it to minors or pregnant women. But the reality on the streets, of course, is very different. And this second store that I went to called Weed Shop Boys, they had like a whole lounge area where you could sit and chill and sort of be on the street with the rest of, you know, the bustling night markets and smoke a joint, which was really beautiful. Um, It fits so well into Thailand's like nighttime street culture in a way that felt kind of new. But it was surprising, you know, like I thought I would smell weed everywhere that I went because, like you said, it literally was on every single street corner. But I felt still that um, not that many tourists were indulging, at least publicly, like on the street. I'm sure that many were taking it onto the beaches and smoking it with their friends and stuff. But, you know, it's 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 in a funny position right now where I don't think tons of weed tourists have come to Thailand yet. And the average, you know, sunburnt European tourist isn't necessarily that excited by a rinky dink weed shop on the side of the street. <laughs> and and in the places where you did see uh, people consuming, did you see people who uh, at least seemed to be from Thailand? Tourists, a mix Again, you know, I had so many misconceptions. I thought going into it that it would be mostly tourists. But actually, the first shop that I went to, Sativa Cafe, was all locals, including like a young family pulling up mom and dad with their kids, just kind of hanging around their their ankles, which I thought was like, again, revelatory in this small way, because You could never imagine children walking into a dispensary in the U.S. Yeah, it just felt so 
casual there to, of course, just pick up some joints on the way back from dinner or something with your kids in tow. And um, yeah, I think because that store really focused on local strains, sort of local delicacy, she showed me this other thing that was like keef wrapped in sugar leaves (laughs) that she said is like a Thai delicacy. (laughs) Oh, that sounds, yeah, that sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, yeah, this is what real Thai people smoke. And you're not going to find this in the bougie dispensaries. Oh, that's interesting. Do Do you remember if there was a specific name for that? Okay. It was called Stone Mix Fruit. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's a hot tip for anybody <laughs> heading to Thailand uh, in the near future. Or, you know, we have a lot of growers listen to this show and they certainly have uh, all the materials required to to experiment with making some of that uh, domestically. And of course, you know, uh, send a DM to the show if you want to uh, share some with us through our ultimately uh, very secure uh, system of a P.O. box uh, <laughs> unofficially. Um, yeah, I'm dying to know actually how Stone Mixed Fruit or any other type. I didn't get to try anything, Dave. I didn't get to try anything. And the reason why is because the way that other countries are responding to legalization of th- of Thai weed has been really severe. In countries like Singapore, where I'm from, there was an advisory that went out to citizens on the flights leaving the country to places like Thailand, reminding us that we as Singaporean citizens are still not allowed to do illegal drugs overseas, even if it's legal in that country. Oh, my gosh. And that, you know, they've been ratcheting up the number of drug tests when you come back to the country from places like Thailand to make sure that none of their citizens are like, you know, because it's like a two hour plane ride. So it'd be so easy for people just to go to Thailand for the weekend and get stoned and come back. But, you know, so many countries like Singapore are terrified that this is going to spill into their borders. And I think we're going to see a lot more sort of tension between Thailand and the rest of the regions that have totally different drug policies. Yes, and I, 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 of course, vehemently disagree with the policy, but I would say the authorities in Singapore are right to fear that when people are able to go somewhere and experience a different, uh, more sensical and open approach to cannabis, that can be a huge factor in spreading uh, these changes and this freedom. I think, you know, one thing we can look to is the example of Amsterdam in, you know, starting in the early 1970s and through the 1980s, sort of the worst, uh, at least uh, rhetorical drug war in the United States, the Just Say No era, the the Reagan Bush years. Amsterdam was this place that people from all over the world could travel and not just theoretically know uh, that the laws against cannabis are oppressive and racist and misguided and ultimately counterproductive and, and really horrific, you know, particularly if you need it for medicine, but also that they could experience another world of 
uh, above board cannabis consumption and distribution. And that had a huge role in changing people's opinions and having people go back to the places that they lived in to advocate for the same kind of change. Certainly, Singapore does not seem to be on the verge of embracing this kind of change. But do you see that effect starting to happen anywhere else in Asia? South Korea, incidentally, uh, legalized medical marijuana in 2018. They actually did it before Thailand, but they have much more intense regulations around it. It's nothing like Thailand. I'm curious if a place like India might be well-poised to do something similar because, again, cannabis is indigenous to the land there. And I think that's what makes me really excited about Thai weed sort of entry into the global foray is this idea of stoner weed culture kind of looking different from how it's looked for the last few decades. Not just in terms of aesthetics, although that's a huge part of it too, but like the types of people that are portrayed as 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 weed connoisseurs or stoners and you know allowing Asian faces to be potheads beyond, I guess, Cheech and Chong. And that's the only Asian, <laughs> that's the only Asian stereotype I, or, or stoner that I know in, in America. I mean, that is really, really groundbreaking to me. Um, Yeah. But in terms of other countries on the edge of legalization in Asia, it still feels, it really feels like Thailand is a bit of an outlier right now. Well, that's uh, that's what outliers are for. So that's definitely something we can uh, keep an eye on as this develops and and certainly you know root for that change that we want to see spread of course everywhere everywhere that anyone is listening to this podcast you know whether it is somewhere with legal weed or somewhere that is still uh living under prohibition um you know we bring you these stories to inspire everyone that this change can and will happen and you know thankfully i think we live in a time when that momentum feels really present and where the idea of cannabis legalization happening in places that were once extremely uh prohibitive and uh criminalizing of this plant is just a fact. You know, we can look at places even in the United States, extremely conservative places. The state of Nevada used to imprison people for 10 years or longer for a single joint. And now there's uh, dispensaries right on the strip in Las Vegas. So, mm-hmm. you know, change can come really quickly. And I, I think partially because these laws themselves don't make any sense. Right. And so you get this emperor wears no clothes moment where everything uh, can change quickly. But of course, that's how it seems from the outside. As we all know, you know, social change of any kind takes the dedication of a lot of activists. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the people on the ground who you might have met or encountered through your travel and through your reporting, who have played a part in in pushing for this change, not, not just in an economic sense, but as a social justice issue. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there are definite coalitions in Thailand run by local business owners and activists, like the Highland Network is sort of a conglomerate that opened the first cannabis cafe in Bangkok. I had a guy from there named Arun Avery, who was a participant in a panel that I created about Thai weed in 2018. He was great. this sort of entrepreneur named Kitty Chopra is super, super famous, I would say now in the scene. Like she has been on this sort of beat for a really long time compared to a lot of people who are sort of entering it now. And even in, you know, 2018, when I was making the rounds, everyone was like, you got to talk to Kitty, you got to talk to Kitty. And she also opened up a dispensary in Bangkok where she's been really weathering all the ups and downs of all the political changes that are happening right now. I mean, Thailand is in a really crazy position at this very moment because um, a lot of doctors and politicians and other sort of people in various sectors in society are actually advocating for it to be recriminalized. There's been a huge backlash against the sort of chaotic rollout of how things have gone. The chances of it actually becoming recriminalized are quite small. It's pretty hard to, you know, put something back in the box once you let it out. But I think the fact that so many sort of so-called respectable members of society are really sort of being like, whoa, this is too much too soon. Like we need to really step back and reevaluate everything. And there's an election coming up where, you know, a lot of the people who were big advocates for weed legalization in parliament might not be there, really could could spell a different future for how cannabis in Thailand um, ends up being. So, you know, I think people like Kitty and other sort of activists in this scene are really standing to attention right now and being like, we need to do things the right way to make sure that it can continue to happen, to continue to exist. But I really, I, I gotta say, like... <laughs> The activism and the change happens on such a micro level sometimes. Like the coolest thing that happened during my trip beyond like getting to discover local stoner delicacies was bringing my parents (laughs) to these little weed shops. And my parents grew up in Singapore. They had zero contact with weed. They didn't even know what it smelled like until they came to visit me in college And, you know, they were kind of like hovering behind me the whole time as I was doing my interviews. And like my mom would like listen and then she would like whisper what I said to like my dad and like pass along the message. It was so cute. And, you know, at the end, as we were walking back home, the reason why they even came with me on the tour is because they thought it would be dangerous. Like they were like, oh, this is not going to be good for you to do alone like they still were just like so afraid you know and at the end as we were walking back to the hotel like my mom was like you know all those people like the woman apple like all these people seem so nice (laughs) they didn't seem like crime syndicate like crime lords at all and I was like yeah mom you know but it really helps I think when you are able to put faces to the movement and see that these are individual people that are really just trying to ache out a living, do something cool (laughs) and not like gangsters or whatever, you know, my parents think weed is about. 
the more suppressed cannabis is, then the fewer people are going to self-identify and people who feel that they have more to lose. So people with the most sort of standing in society are going to be the least likely to be upfront about that. So it creates a very skewed view of who uses cannabis and it fits into and fuels uh, these stigmas and these stereotypes that we do see start to break down uh, as prohibition breaks down. And, and, and frankly, as some people who, you know, not, not that your uh, parents are, are ready to puff tough, but <laughs> people's minds change. And, and ultimately we see new people uh, who will try cannabis once it is uh, accepted by society and, and certainly when the criminalization ends. But we do also get this kind of backlash. And what's always so funny to me in a, in a dark humor kind of way is the opponents of cannabis legalization before it happens will say, Oh, you know, this, there'll be crime in the streets and people will immediately become addicted to X or Y or Z, whatever the scariest drug in that area is. And it's going to kill the economy and it's going to do all these horrible things. And then when it happens, they always fall back on stuff like, I smelled weed when I walked through the park. <laughs> That's literally what happened. It was some politician smelled it on his morning jog. <laughs> yes. And it's like, well, you played yourself uh, because you said that what was going to happen was the complete breakdown of society with death and destruction and blood in the streets. And now you're saying it smells like flowers. Uh, and, and I don't know how to explain to my children that they are smelling weed, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, when there are obviously uh, anywhere on the earth such such uh, much more pressing matters to worry about. And so I do hope, you know, that the election that you referenced is going to be on May 7th in Thailand. And yeah, it's not an overstatement from from what I've read and seen uh, that that the future of of legalization there could be um, at stake. And so the real question facing voters in Thailand is going to be, do we move forward and um, try to create a system that allows access to cannabis that supports local growers and communities that embraces the medicinal value of this plant that uh, makes it attractive for tourists to come and experience a safe uh, cannabis culture and that I would say hopefully fosters the kind of cross-cultural understandings that that we see when cannabis is available to people that embraces the history of cannabis in Thailand and throughout Asia or are they going to allow the uh, authoritarians to uh, drag this back and and make this time period uh, an anomaly? And I'm, I'm heartened to hear you say that you think uh, it, 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 it's not something we're going to be able. It's not something they're going to be able to push back in the box and we'll we'll have to see what happens with this election but the one thing i do know is that weed people don't give up 
weed people <laughs> don't stop smoking weed the the history of uh cannabis prohibition is uh that it does not work and so i hope that's uh will be reflected in the election results in the meantime um just want to thank you so much for all of your reporting in particular for the excellent reporting about thailand in rave new world and you know can't wait to see uh where and when and what you report on next in this great big world. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you so much for having me. Shout out to all the Asian stoners out there. Absolutely. And big shout out to all of our listeners throughout Asia. And, uh, you know, please be if you're listening in Thailand, please vote. And if you're listening elsewhere, I hope you are inspired by what's going on in Thailand. And I hope that you are soon living in a place where this cannabis plant is celebrated. And uh, Michelle, I, I think you and I are probably both about to celebrate the cannabis plant in our own uh, unique way. And uh, we can stick around for that after the, after the close. Cool. This is so fun. Thank you, Dave. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.